From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. She'll be the new face in Colorado's congressional delegation. Come January, Lauren Boebert will represent a district where the cost of health care is high and where energy is a way of life. Opening new markets, she says, will keep families intact. My husband works in the natural gas industry, and I know that when our industry is bad here, he usually goes somewhere else to work. And that is a very hard strain on the family. Bobert on the record today on the Affordable Care Act, COVID-19 restrictions, and guns at the Capitol. Then, Time's first kid of the year is a Coloradan. Just having this title, it allows me to represent Every other student out there looking to be a scientist, looking to be an innovator. And a cultural icon is closing. El Chapultepec leaves behind a jazz legacy. Yesterday was Colorado Gives Day, and thousands of people came together to support over 2,000 nonprofits across our state. Thank you to the many donors who chose to support Colorado Public Radio's in-depth news and music discovery. Your gift strengthens CPR, and it ensures that independent news and information is available to all listeners across Colorado. From everyone here at CPR, thank you for being a part of Colorado Gives Day. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In a state that went big for Joe Biden, Republican and Trump fan Lauren Boebert scored a comfortable victory to represent Grand Junction and Pueblo and Alamosa in Congress. Soon she'll be sworn in. The restaurateur, gun rights activist, and avid Twitter user was in Washington for freshman orientation. She's back home in the 3rd District now which is where we reached her to talk energy, health care, vaccines, and unity. Well, Congresswoman-elect, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me today, Ryan. And I'd love to just jump in to some policy. You campaigned on a pro-energy platform. You described it as an all-of-the-above strategy that includes everything from drilling to nuclear energy. What kind of activity would you like to see in Colorado to produce nuclear energy? There certainly um, is uranium that we could work to uh, extract, and I I would love to be a part of that. In fact, I have been uh, having conversations with Alex Epstein, and if you don't know who he is, he wrote the book The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and uh, nuclear is something that uh, he discusses a lot. And and this is something that's always kind of frustrated me when we hear about reducing CO2 emissions or or being carbonless by 2050. Uh, it's just very disingenuous to me because there's no opportunity to explore using uranium uh, to create nuclear energy, which we know is the cleanest uh, form of energy. It's even hard to get something as simple as hydroelectricity classified as a renewable. You see nuclear then as a way to reduce carbon and fight climate change. Do I hear you right? Absolutely. A way to uh, reduce carbon emissions. Yes. You call it the safest form of energy. I think some would push back and say that's maybe solar or wind. Uh, What do you base that that on? Well, it's certainly the cleanest uh, form of energy uh, uranium is. We've come a long way in the production and and just learning um, how to work with uh, uranium and make sure that it is safe. The problem with wind and solar is this is uh, intermittent energy. And so it's really an unreliable energy source because you have to have the wind blowing. You have to have the sun shining. And uh, we have 
rare earth minerals right here in America. But because of the regulations that are put on when it comes to mining these rare earth minerals, it's very difficult to get the permits approved and, and move forward with that here uh, in the United States. So then our energy is often outsourced to China and Africa. And my biggest problem with that, um, other than uh, being subject to China for our energy needs, is, is that child and slave labor is often used there. And that alone uh, should make us reconsider where we are outsourcing our energy needs to. President Trump and his administration have uh, made America energy independent. And I want to continue that. And I want to pursue energy dominance. We have uh, natural gas here. We have our coal industry. But our natural gas is really something that I like to focus on. Speaking of, you support a proposed project called Jordan Cove to build a port in in Oregon and an associated pipeline, uh, which would get liquefied natural gas to overseas markets. What benefit do you see that bringing your district? So many. Uh, So first of all, I mean, it's an instant economic boost here in my district. Exporting our LNG globally, selling our uh, liquefied natural gas to these countries who are currently dependent on communist dictators. It not only creates international markets, but it does the right thing of liberating these countries. But here in, in the district, it creates these high paying jobs. And my favorite part about a good paying job here in the district is that it keeps families together. Uh, My husband works in the natural gas industry. He drills for natural gas. He has for 17 years. And I know that when our industry is bad here, he usually goes somewhere else to work. And that is a very hard strain on the family. And there are many families that haven't recovered from that. Dad had to go to another state. Dad had to go to another country to drill and, and provide for his family to meet those needs that they had set their standards of living to, it's really hard to hear the families that, that don't come back together after that. But not only do we have just those high paying jobs for families, but the small businesses that are impacted from that, that is very important to me. I know in my restaurant, things are going really well when there are chunks of mud that I have to clean up off of my floor, because that means the guys are coming in after a long, hard day's work in the in the field and uh, spending their money in, in my uh, establishment. And if you don't mind, I'd like to just uh, touch on Pueblo really quick. I, I spent a lot of time in Pueblo. This is a city also that has committed itself to renewable energy. It's the seat of of Vestas, a huge wind power uh, firm. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And uh, we certainly want to support them in in all of the above energy needs. Uh, We just don't want government choosing the winners and losers with their subsidies and creating a false market. We want free markets. We want the markets to be able to decide. Would you eliminate subsidies for fossil fuels then? Because they they too are subsidized. I'm not. Yes, I'm not for subsidies at all. We are a country uh, of capitalism and we we need to have free markets deciding. When you have government uh, getting involved, and and creating um, false markets. I mean, that's when you pervert the research and development process. I am not for subsidies whatsoever uh, for our energy industry. Republican Congresswoman-elect Lauren Boebert is our guest, who come January will represent the 3rd Congressional District in Colorado. I I do want to move on to uh, some health care issues. Last month, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments on a lawsuit that would effectively kill the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. You've said you support keeping coverage for pre-existing conditions. What about the rest of the ACA? Do you support doing away with that? 
Um, I, I have, I've never really made a, um, a stance, taking a stance on uh, keeping or, or eliminating ACA. Uh, I think that we need to have a more free market-based solution and, and create competition in the marketplace. And maybe there's something that comes up that has an option where American citizens get to choose a, a more free uh, healthcare solution where uh, patient and doctor relations are brought together, where there's transparency in prices and there's uh, competition in the pricing that uh, they just kind of step away from the ACA and it dissolves on its own because it's not popular or needed and people have another option. In other words, moving beyond the ACA is not something you object to. We, we need better for the American people. Right now, when you talk to Democrats, uh, they want to expand it and ultimately move towards universal health care. Uh, so I think that Republicans need to uh, start presenting ideas that are more free market based and give ability uh, to people to be in control of their own health care decisions rather than having more government intervention. I don't think that we need to look to government to be our savior here. This is a theme for you. I want to read from a, a recent tweet that you sent. Stop waiting. Uh oh. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> I say a lot. <laughs> you you are active on Twitter, uh, and you said in in the past few days, stop waiting for the government to save you. In America, we save ourselves. I wonder if you would put that philosophy into the context of COVID nineteen. A lot of struggling businesses right now that need government help. A lot of uh, people who need rental assistance, etc. What does it mean to say to someone during a global pandemic, stop waiting for the government to save you? In America, we save ourselves. Well, why do they need saving right now? Because government stepped in and thought that they knew best on how to run our lives. It's these blue states where governors have pushed forward their executive orders and have shut down their economies. And now they're expecting um, handouts from the federal government. Uh, You know, I think the best stimulus package is to reopen America. We need to get back open for business. You cannot keep shutting people down. People are desperate. I get dozens of emails every single day of people wanting to get to work. They want to open their businesses. They are losing everything because government said, we know best. Shut down your restaurant. Shut down your business. Give me an example of a recent email. Can you think of an example that stands out? There's a lot of emails that that just say, I'm getting ready to lose everything. I, I had a woman stop me in the Grand Junction airport, and she just started crying. And she said, we cannot go on living like this. Uh, she talked about friends that she knows were, that they're losing their businesses. People have invested their lives into their business, and now government is saying, you can't operate. Now, we, we have certain unalienable rights here in America. And these rights don't come from government. They didn't come from some politician. These are endowed by our creator. These are our God-given rights. These are our natural rights, if you will. Uh, We, the governed, give consent to be governed. And there's some things that we aren't consenting to anymore. Uh, That's why you see so many business owners taking a stand and refusing to shut down their doors because they want to make payroll. That's why I opened my restaurant back in May. I needed to make payroll. Uh, We're talking about Shooter's Grill and Rifle. Yes. Now, there are rights, and then I think you'd hear from some that there are responsibilities that we have to one another. And uh, Congresswoman-elect, I speak to a lot of healthcare professionals, frontline nurses and doctors who are exhausted, who can't imagine opening the economy even more and seeing the virus spread to an even greater degree. 
Uh, we know that hospital capacity is stressed. So it's one thing to call for businesses to be open, but what would that mean for the healthcare system on the Western Slope, for instance, or in Pueblo, if the virus has its way with us? Uh, so first of all, um, I want to extend um, my heartfelt gratitude to everyone who is on the front lines uh, taking care of this. You know, these they don't I don't I don't know called... if they're going to believe the gratitude when they hear that you want to reopen the economy. OK, well, I am I am grateful for them. And, uh, you know, they they've definitely signed up for an industry where this is a possibility. They have signed up to be on the front lines. And that's why we call them heroes. But we our, our suicide rates are high. Our depression rates are high. Our children are home. We cannot go on living like this under these shutdowns. I think we'd follow CDC guidelines and we follow them safely and responsibly and we get opened. Will you take the vaccine? Um, I have not decided on that. My husband and I, my children, uh, we are all vaccinated and that's our personal choice. Uh, government never mandated us to be vaccinated with anything. At this time, I don't see that we are in, in a class of people that need the vaccination. We are healthy. We are in a, we're young. I am against any sort of uh, government mandate vaccination. That's not the proper role of government to force injections of any kind in anyone. You've said that President Donald Trump should continue to contest the results of the election. Uh, you were recently quoted in Epic Times as saying, if it needs to go to the House, then I think we have that authority. That is to challenge electoral college votes. Congressional mm -hmm. conservatives are indeed calling for a floor fight to do that. But the courts have repeatedly rejected President Trump's claims that the election was rigged. Why fight in the Congress if so many courts, I mean, we're talking dozens of decisions, are saying that Biden is the legitimate winner. This is a contested race. And when I sat in the Oval Office with the president of the United States for more than an hour just last week, I encouraged him to keep fighting, continue to fight for the for the American people, just like you've done every single day that you have been in office. He has put the American people first, and that's what he's going to continue to do. What and is I contested? Trump has every legal right to continue to investigate this election and prove that every legal vote was counted. The Democrats ran the American people through a sham investigation over a witch hunt with uh, Russian uh, hoax and uh, and then even a quid pro quo and all of this from a secondhand whistleblower. And we're going to say that we have hundreds of affidavits from American citizens who are putting their name to it, who are swearing uh, uh, under oath that this is true, that we have video footage, that we know that we have um, ballots where signatures were not verified. There is all sorts of things that need to be investigated, and there is nothing unreasonable about investigating it until the very last day. To guns, before we wrap up, uh, you carry one. The employees of your restaurant and rifle wear them at work. And you've said that you'll carry in the U.S. Capitol. The AP reports there's a rule against carrying on the floor, I think, of the U.S. House. Is that something you'll try to change? Absolutely. I'm always pushing boundaries. Uh, <laughs> so first of all, um, I did go through the concealed carry permit process in Washington, D.C., and will be receiving my concealed carry permit 
I uh, will be walking to and from my home every day that I am there to go to work and to come home from work. I don't have Capitol Hill police escorting me everywhere. I am my security. Uh, so I need to make sure that I have a way to defend myself. Washington, D.C., like most Democrat-run cities, has a violent crime problem. Uh, so I definitely would like to have a way to protect myself, and I will have a way to. Um, and then there are some fun ways to get around carrying uh, in the Capitol, and there's transportation rules on how you can carry and, and transporting in various areas. In my office, I can open carry and uh, have my uh, firearm however I want. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's some sort of push for an amendment to the rules to allow members to carry on the House floor. One more question, just to pick up on something you, you've said. You talk about like Democrat-run states and, and Democrat-run cities. Is it good for America to talk about uh, this kind of state, this kind of city versus that kind of city and that kind of state? Um, is that a unifying message? Is that a helpful message to say, you know, D.C.'s Democrat, you know, they're, they're other, they're, they're, they're not us. What, what, no, that's what they are. I mean, I, I would I would be a liar if I said D.C. was a Republican uh, city. I mean, if I if I said that Colorado was Republican ran, I'm saying what it is. I mean, this is factual and um, elections have consequences. And these are the policies that are being put forward in these types of governments. Uh, you don't see Republican ran states being shut down and the rights of their people taken to the extent that you do in Democrat uh, states. So it's not about um, unifying. Maybe maybe it's about enlightening somebody that says, hey, you have these problems. Um, look at the Californians who are fleeing. We have Californian refugees fleeing and coming to states like Texas and Colorado. And unfortunately, here in Colorado, uh, those Californians who are fleeing those terrible policies from that blue state, that Democrat state, they're fleeing that state and coming to Colorado and bringing their policies with them. But they're coming to places like Aspen. They're coming to Steamboat Springs, these high mountain uh, ski resort towns, because they can actually afford to live there. But they're bringing these same terrible policies with them and implementing them here. And then they're going to be running from them once again. I want to thank you for your time. And I hope to check back in with you uh, as you begin to serve come January. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Republican Lauren Boebert of Silt will represent Colorado's third congressional district starting next month. That district includes most of the Western Slope and portions of southern Colorado, including Pueblo. So we mentioned the COVID-19 vaccine, which she's not sure she'll get. It so happens we're working on a special to answer your questions about Colorado's vaccine rollout. What do you want to know? Email us or leave us a voicemail. I'm going to give you both right now so you can jot this down. Our email address is coloradomatters at cpr.org. That's coloradomatters at cpr.org. Or you can call 303-871-9191, extension 480. It's our main number, 303-871-9191, extension 480. We are eager to answer your questions about the COVID-19 vaccines in Colorado. Extreme drought is likely to continue, and the state is urging agriculture to prepare. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis spoke with some young ranchers who are learning techniques that can help them adapt to and fight climate change. 
On a pasture outside of Steamboat Springs, rancher Matthew Gordon bends down and grabs a handful of grass. His wife, Mandy, watches and chuckles over his excitement. What's happening here is really super cool because we have like several layers of organic matter built up on top of this ground. But underneath, even now, during this cold time, I can see new grass growing. Their cattle helped build up this layer. Their hooves trample down grass and their own waste for good compost. And also then provides a cover for the ground, a blanket, insulation, which is able to also help store water and keep the soil temperature cooler. Matthew and Mandy are nerds for this kind of stuff. They listen to podcasts, watch YouTube videos, and take classes on ways to manage land in more natural and sustainable ways. They've worked on other ranches, but now they're taking all that information and starting their own operation in the middle of a historic drought and a changing climate. I see water kind of going away, and that can be a little scary. Through, you know, a lot of our practices, by helping promote healthier soil, um, it helps the water infiltrate and stay on the land instead of running off. A conventional rancher will turn cattle out onto pasture for several weeks or months, but that can lead to overgrazing and major damage to the land, especially during a drought. So the Gordons use portable electric fences to keep their cattle moving, mimicking how predators chase herd animals around. Whether it be elk or bison that used to be on an area for a short period of time, consuming that one bite or two of the vegetation, and they would move, and that's when the magic happens of the recovery period. Since there's still something left of that grass, it can use photosynthesis to regrow. Through that process, the plant captures carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and pumps it down into the soil through a healthy root system. Carbon capture is kind of a buzzword these days, and they're trying to develop technologies to do it when, you know, this is a technology that we've had for forever. Industrial farming techniques like intensive tillage, animal feedlots, and the use of chemical fertilizers and pesticides have done a lot of damage to soil ecosystems worldwide. Nicole Savita is the Sustainable Food Systems Specialization Lead at the University of Colorado Boulder. What existed before we started plowing up the prairies was this really, really complex, rich ecosystem we took, you know, what had developed over millennia and had been really well managed by indigenous communities and destroyed it all very, very quickly to our own peril. Regenerative agriculture is considered an important climate solution. It has the potential to draw down a lot of carbon. While more farmers and ranchers in Colorado are adopting these techniques, they make up a small number overall. Savita says it's just not what most producers know. There's a knowledge gap that we need to bridge because we have been farming in agrochemically intensive ways for a long time. It can also take some convincing that it works. It's understandable that a farmer would say like, yeah, I, I just can't take the risk in abandoning what I know. And it takes time to reap the benefits. It's not as though a farmer can stop farming in a more conventional way tomorrow and suddenly the soil is magically healed, right? But Savita says the efforts can help farmers adapt to climate change and make more money. Cindy Lair is with the Colorado Department of Agriculture. She says profitability is the key to making this type of farming popular. If it's not going to help make good business sense to a farmer or rancher, they're really not going to be interested in, in doing this. But some farmers and ranchers might need financial support to make the shift. Colorado has created a soil health program to help, but there's no state funding for it yet. 
For now, the program is funded by a $5 million partnership with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The Gordons got a microloan from a local nonprofit to help them start. Matthew says one of the biggest challenges is convincing other farmers and ranchers to give regenerative agriculture a shot. Inherently, the farming and ranching community attracts, you know, very tough, hard-headed people, and that's what makes them good and, and what makes them resilient. The Gordons want to reshape that rugged mindset for a changing climate. For them, that means learning to adapt so their ranch can change too. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a eulogy for a Denver jazz club. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. $340 million. That's how much money the state is about to send to businesses, individuals, and the public health system to try to get through the worsening pandemic. I'm Andrew Kenny, and this week on the CPR News Politics Podcast, Purplish, my colleague Bento Berkland and I dissect the legislature's warp speed special session. What passed, why, and just how much did they fight over masks? That's in this week's Purplish. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It was affectionately known as the Peck. A jazz and blues landmark in Denver will close after 87 years. You knew that when you saw the cantina sign, that's where the action was. That's where jazz was. That's where you were welcome. And when I say it didn't matter, it didn't matter where you came from, what your, what your lot in life was. If you had enough money to buy a beer and you wanted to enjoy some music, you were welcome. And you'd be in there rubbing elbows with the mayor, with a senator with a famous musician or a a famous uh, celebrity, movie star, whatever. This was the place where everybody came to kind of let their hair down and unwind. That is Carlos Lando of KUVO speaking outside El Chapultepec in lower downtown Denver Tuesday. The jazz club announced this week it's closing for good. But it's not just because of the pandemic. Anna Diaz is the daughter of late owner Jerry Kranz. She says the decision to close has been brewing for years, starting with the construction of Coors Field. Jazz musicians, blues musicians, they shouldn't have to time their sets around the baseball innings and when the crowd's going to get out and be wild. They should be able to play their music and the crowd just be there to enjoy them. And that's been really difficult to manage. And we've been doing it a long time. In her words, Denver's different than it used to be. And while she appreciates the outpouring of community support... The pack is not for sale, and the decision is final. There's not going to be a GoFundMe that's going to reverse our, our choice. So we just want to be clear about that. The pack is a living, breathing part of Denver, and especially a part of our family. And it's very intimate to us. And we're just ready to close that chapter and keep it with us. You can hear her holding back tears. Let's reminisce now with Denver Post jazz critic Brett Saunders. Brett, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. There are stories of famous clientele and performers at El Chapultepec over its 87-year history. Jack Kerouac, Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra... Uh, Even President Bill Clinton supposedly took the stage with his saxophone. (laughs) (laughs) But you describe the club's history as a bit murky. Why is that? 
Well, I've heard conflicting reports on uh, some of the events that transpired at El Chapultepec, but I love the stories behind El Chapultepec. Uh, one of the stories that we've all heard and has been reported as fact is the notion that uh, at the time, candidate Bill Clinton came to play at El Chapultepec, and he played for two entire sets on stage. But I have heard from other people that he visited El Chapultepec, but he never actually had a saxophone or performed. But I kind of like, and I'm sure you do too, Ryan, I kind of like the version where he played two sets on stage that day. Yeah, <laughs> it makes for a slightly better story. I guess we can say confidently he was there at at least he was there. Uh, you, I think so, yeah. You started frequenting the club, I think, in the mid-90s. What was it like then? It was everything that I had hoped it would be like. I had heard about it from other people. It was sort of a rite of passage for anyone who moved to Colorado or was coming through Colorado to visit this legendary club, this club where Jack Kerouac used to hang out. And you mentioned some of the other stars, Frank Sinatra. I heard Mick Jagger. I've, I've heard stories about you, too, uh, being turned away from El Chipotle. In fact, those are probably stories for another day. But hmm. what I took away from visiting the club was how unpretentious it was, how honest it was, how you could walk in through the door, but you needed to make sure that you got there relatively early or you wouldn't get a seat on a Friday or Saturday night as the club would fill up. And you would hear these amazing local musicians. And if you were lucky, Ryan, you would get the opportunity to hear a star like, say, Wynton Marsalis, who was very vocal telling me one day when I was interviewing him for a Denver Post article mm. that after he played at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts, he was going to take his trumpet and head over to El Chapultepec. It just had that sort of a reputation. You've described the club's atmosphere elsewhere as democratic. What do you mean by democratic? I actually received that uh, word from a friend of mine who was also a big fan of the club. At the idea of democracy being that there are clubs in the country, without naming any names, but let's just say a club in New York where you would have to pay a big fee up front, you'd have to stay for dinner, and there would be a minimum on drinks. And then wow. after the first set, you're out of there because they have to clear the room for the next round of paying customers. At El Chapultepec, everyone was welcome. If you had money for one beer or one drink, you could sit there and listen to the music being performed all night long. That's what I mean by democratic. This club, it's a big loss, I think, in a lot of ways. To me, El Chapultepec was always kind of a, an unmovable object, but time tends to move objects that we even think of as unmovable. And that's the case here. Uh, we were curious in the newsroom what El Chapultepec means. At the Grasshopper Hill is the translation. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Uh, we're going to highlight some artists who are staples at El Chapultepec. Up first, Denver jazz musician Freddie Rodriguez Sr. This is Meanwhile by the Jazz Corps, featuring Freddie Rodriguez Sr. on saxophone. He was a regular for decades. We should note that he passed away this year after contracting COVID-19. What was it like to see him take the stage? It was like being home in Denver. That recording that you played from the Jazz Corps was a record that he made in 1967, along with uh, Roland Kirk, who was a very famous saxophone player. Freddie 
matched Roland Kirk note for note on his solos on that album by the Jazz Corps. And I would say, along with Jerry Kranz, who was the uh, owner of El Chapultepec right. until his passing in 2012, that Freddie Rodriguez was kind of the heart and soul of that club. He played there, like you mentioned, uh, up until he died from complications with COVID-19 uh, back in March of this year. He, I believe, was on and off that stage weekly for about 40 years. So he really was the soul of that club in terms mm. of performances. Another saxophonist, Red Holloway, played with legends like Aretha Franklin, Etta James, Muddy Waters, Billie Holiday. Uh, he was based in Chicago. Holloway was for much of his career. Um, but where does El Chapultepec come into his story? I wanted to bring up Red Holloway because to me, he's an example of a great journeyman saxophone player and artist who spent his entire life uh, performing for smaller crowds. He had this terrific soulful sound on saxophone, and he has a real wealth of recordings if you want to go dig in and, and listen to them. But Red Holloway, he was one of the first people I saw play with a bunch of uh, Denver locals on stage some time in the 1990s at El Chapultepec. He played at other clubs in Denver as well, but there was just something about him that just yells out the kind of vibe that you would get if you went to see jazz music performed at El Chapultepec. And this is a track that lives up to its name, Still Groovin', performed by Red <laughs> Holloway. We're kind of bopping in the studio here as we remember El Chapultepec. Uh, a sad occasion, of course. Um, you know, let's hear from a contemporary artist with a connection to the club. Uh, you've picked Javon Jackson. He's released several albums on the long-running Blue Note jazz label. Just tell us more about Jackson. Javon Jackson was one of those artists who played with uh, Billy Wallace, who was a, a local artist who played often at El Chapultepec. And he sort of uh, rose up in the Denver jazz scene from playing in clubs like El Chapultepec. And he went on in his career, like you mentioned, to record several records for Blue Note in the 1990s. And I have memories of speaking with him about his affection for the club. So I thought we would listen to some uh, Javon Jackson because to me he represents sort of the, uh, one of the, the last generations who uh, frequented the club and performed on stage there. Okay, we have Leapfrog from Javon Jackson. How are you feeling personally about the news? I think that it's a sad day because, like I mentioned earlier, it just felt like El Chapultepec was an immovable object. It was there before Lodo was Lodo. When you played uh, that actuality earlier about uh, having to shape the sets around baseball innings, yeah. I think a lot of us forget that El Chapultepec was there decades before Coors Field was there. So I, I am feeling 
pretty sad. There are some other terrific clubs in town like Nocturne and Dazzle, and I hope that they will hang on. I mean, so many wonderful establishments are being affected by what 2020 has been. But there are a lot of friendly ghosts in that building, that, that, that corner building there. And I hope whatever happens that there will be some uh, historical recognition for what an important part of this culture El Chapultepec has been. Friendly ghosts. God, I got goosebumps when you said that, Brett. Thanks so much for sharing uh, the history with us and your own observations. It's always my pleasure, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Brett Saunders, jazz critic for the Denver Post. You may know him as well from KBCO. You can read more about the PEC at denverite.com. As our colleague Hart Van Denberg reports, the Krantz family never owned the building, but because the structure has been deemed historic, the iconic cantina sign will not be taken down. Instead, it will serve as another reminder of what used to make Denver, Denver. And we'll send off El Chapultepec with Colorado's own Big Head Todd and the Monsters performing Hard Times Come Again No More with Hazel Miller at the legendary Denver Jazz Club. Though their voices are silent, their pleading looks will say, Oh, hard times come again no more. The sign of the weary Oh, hard times, hard times Come again no more Many a day You have lingered All around my cabin door Oh, hard times Come again Time magazine has named its first-ever Kid of the Year. She is 15-year-old Gitanjali Rao of Lone Tree. I first met Rao three years ago when she'd been named America's top young scientist for her invention of a drinking water lead test. So I've been following the Flint water crisis for about two years now, Hmm. and I thought about creating a device when I saw my parents testing for lead in our water using the test strips, and I realized that it wasn't a reliable process, and I wanted to do something to change this not only for my parents, but for the residents of Flint and places like Flint around the world. Well, now Rao is on the cover of Time. Katanjali, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I first met you in 2017. I think you were 11. You're 15 now. Can you reflect on the Katanjali that I met back then? Are you are you the same person? <laughs> I mean, I guess, like, truthfully, yes. I am the same Katanjali, but um, I've been doing a lot more. I think it's just the passion and motivation is still there. I've just gone a lot farther with it. Yeah. 
I mean, you rocketed to fame when you were named America's top young scientist. This was for a device you invented in seventh grade to detect lead in drinking water. You were inspired by the crisis in Flint, Michigan. I I guess, first off, what has happened to that? You called it Tethys. Yeah, it's called Tethys, and it detects lead in drinking water. And currently, it's at the stage where it's patent pending, and I'm working on partnering with a bulk manufacturer to work on scale testing and scale production of the device as well. So to get it into more hands and to have it be, I guess, inexpensive enough that people will buy it. Exactly. Yep. Okay. I mean, that must have been a big learning curve, not just the science, but the production, you know, the commercialization of something. For sure. And that's actually kind of what got me into wanting to go into product design and product development. Ah. And so is that where you see yourself? Um, I truthfully do not know where I'm going to see myself in the next couple of years as I'm heading into college and then heading out of college. <laughs> but I guess the biggest thing is whatever I'm doing, I really want to continue making a positive impact on the world. So yeah, I guess I do. I really love product design and hopefully that's something I do go into. But I also really like biology and technology and computer science and like seven other fields. And so. seven others. <laughs> uh, okay. Your latest venture is an app called Kindly to help with cyberbullying. How does it work? Yeah. So with Kindly itself, it's actually an artificial intelligence service, which is able to pick up phrases and keywords, which might be considered bullying. So I actually inputted a couple keywords in there and it learns it by itself as would any human being. So it's a service which can be invoked on a variety of different front ends. So as a sample, I created my own chat app as well as a Google Chrome extension, Um, but it can also be expanded to other social media as well as your own SMS and other chat. So if I sent a message that like maybe could come across as mean or petty or bullying, it would alert me before it's sent? It would. Yep. Before it sends, it would alert you and let you know that, hey, this isn't the way I would word it. Is there another way that you think you might want to word it? And the whole purpose of this is not intended to be punitive. So anybody no matter how old you are, would be receive a warning, letting them know that, hey, this isn't, isn't how I would word it. And this obviously doesn't report it immediately and it doesn't go directly to a punishment sort of situation. And I think that it really emphasizes the meaning of created by a teenager for a teenager firsthand. Give me an example of a line that I could enter in and that it would be like, oh, wait, not so fast. Um... So the really cool thing about Kindly is it's actually broken into intents within the artificial intelligence service. So it has different levels of bullying. So you have your super critical bullying words, which is something that might be intended as go kill yourself or something very harsh. But then there's a next level, which is potential cyberbullying, which could be like you're ugly or you're annoying. And it gives basically different options for each. For the critical ones, you're required to change it before you submitted. Um, But for the potential cyberbullying, the ones that's not critical, it allows you to have the option to either edit or ignore it. Now, what if my intention is to hurt that person's feelings? Well, that's exactly what Kindly is supposed to do. It gives you a learning experience, a reason why you should um, you know, maybe giving them a reason why you shouldn't say something like that. But actually, my latest work is on the reporting functionality is we're looking at more of a frequency and a trend towards um, what, how many times would you need to bully someone until it is 
completely um, report it to someone else. Okay. Leadership is one of the reasons that Time Magazine selected you as Kid of the Year, because you've given TED Talks, you mentor other young people who are also trying to make a difference. What do you make of this first ever Kid of the Year award designation? Yeah, it's so beyond honoring and humbling to have this designation and just be on the cover of Time Magazine among so many other incredible, incredible people, as well as um, among the fantastic finalists for Kid of the Year as well. So this is an amazing honor. And I think that just by having this title, it allows me to represent every other student out there looking to be a scientist, looking to be an innovator. How is pandemic learning going for you, Katanjali? How does it feel to be in this really weird environment? It's definitely weird to be doing all of sophomore year off of my laptop, but I think it, like, I'm down for sleeping in any day. So that was, <laughs> that's the best part, honestly, is is so good when you can wake up like three minutes and be like, oh, I have to go to school and walk over like three feet to your desk. Um, but yeah, that, I think that's my favorite part. But uh, obviously it is hard for that to like not have that face-to-face interaction. So I can't wait until we can start getting back into that. Hmm. Thank you so much for being with us. Congratulations. How many interviews have you done today? I don't even know. I did like, I did a whole <laughs> press tour this morning with like 16 yeah. and then I've done like four since then. So. Oh my God. Well, okay. If this is your 21st interview, you, um, you dedicated your heart to it and I'm so grateful. Thanks, Katanjali. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Katanjali Rao is a 10th grader at STEM school Highlands Ranch and Time Magazine's first ever Kid of the Year. Colorado will soon have its first lawmaker known to use a wheelchair. David Ortiz was just elected in South Metro Denver, but the state capitol building isn't really accessible. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland looks into changes underway that some say are long overdue. Democratic Representative-elect David Ortiz has had to make a lot of changes in the last eight years. After he survived a catastrophic helicopter crash while serving in Afghanistan, the U.S. Army veteran now lives in Littleton. As you pull up in the driveway, you'll notice right away that there are two concrete ramps, one that is in the carport area. Ortiz is a paraplegic. The The accident left him without sensation or muscle control below his waist. There is a push button for the main door, and so that makes the main entrance doorway completely accessible with the push button accessibility. Ortiz recorded this virtual tour of his home. It's full of modifications he'd also like to see at the state capitol. The building is accessible to people with disabilities, but not really everywhere. There are steps into the Senate and House chambers and steps on the aisles inside the House that make it impossible for a person in a wheelchair to get to any of the lawmakers' desks. To prepare for Ortiz, ramps have been installed and crews are putting in a new electronic door. House Clerk Robin Jones showed me some of the changes. And then this is the desk where we have Representative Elector T sitting that we've modified so that he can fit his wheelchair underneath the desk. Obviously, the most urgent thing was to make sure I could at least do my job. That's Ortiz. But for me, the long-term goal is making sure that entire building is truly the people's house for anybody living with a, a disability. According to the Centers for Disease Control, one in four Americans lives with a disability. But Ortiz says before his accident, that wasn't on his radar. 
unless you have family, friends, or until you live that way yourself, it's hard to imagine the many different ways that, you know, the world isn't accessible to you. A number of states have made changes to their Capitol buildings in recent years to accommodate lawmakers with disabilities. Arizona has relocated desks, added electronic doors, and remodeled bathrooms after the election two years ago of Democrat Jennifer Longdon, who uses a wheelchair. She says the renovations are a vast improvement and remembers when Arizona's Capitol only had one wheelchair-accessible bathroom. There was another one that was supposed to be accessible, and I was visiting and tried to use it and ended up breaking my hand. It was just too narrow. And But how often do you expect to you know, break a potty part trying to get into a restroom? Longdon says she was keeping track of Ortiz's election victory. She describes state lawmakers with physical disabilities as unicorns because they're so rare. Because of that, I think that this community, the disability community, which is the largest minority population in our nation, really gets woefully underrepresented. Denver City Councilman Chris Hines is a paraplegic and a longtime advocate for rights for people with disabilities. He says the state capitol needs changes to ensure everyone has access to their government. That wasn't a big consideration when the building was constructed 130 years ago. And there are ways to balance the historic preservation and the celebration of our past with the celebration of everyone today. Last summer, as Ortiz campaigned for office, lawmakers started to focus on how he will be able to access the chamber if he won. Republican House Minority Leader Hugh McCain was instrumental in facilitating the updates. He credits Hines and Ortiz for helping him look at accessibility through a broader lens. McCain says the ultimate goal is not to just do the minimum requirements, but to truly embody the spirit of the Americans with Disabilities Act. It's the freedom of movement that we really aren't that conscious of. And so it's not just to get to one specific place. It's to to be able to access the chamber or the building in many ways, just like the rest of us, and at the same kind of ease. But it'll take even more updates before Ortiz has the same access to the chamber as other lawmakers. For instance, several steps still block his way up to the speaker's podium. And since there's not a ramp, when it's his turn to preside over the House floor, six staffers will step in to lift him to the podium in his wheelchair. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to the team that helps bring this show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Paolo Schalzner. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.